Hello and welcome to this episode of Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skiller Whale, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow. On Stack Overflow, questions have to have a single right answer, and questions can be closed and archived because they're considered primarily opinion-based. We think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer. They are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers and the context that makes them appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skiller Well, where we do targeted capability training. That means individually personalized, hands-on training sessions with a live expert for your team conducted remotely in one-hour chunks. I'm a career CTO and have run Tech Leader Dinners for three years, and I've also worked as a CTO coach. And in all of those roles and positions, I've seen the same questions come up again and again, but with answers that are different every time, because context is critical. Today, we're going to be addressing the question, is a hacker good or bad? And here to help me answer that is Ted Harrington. Ted, hello. Thanks for being here. Please tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um... I'm a leader of ethical hackers. I run a security consulting company called ISE, Independent Security Evaluators. And we've been behind some pretty groundbreaking security research. Like we were the first company to hack the iPhone and the first company to hack Android OS. Some of our more recent research has looked at things like how, how attackers could hurt or potentially even kill patients in a healthcare setting. We looked at uh, cryptocurrency wallets. So we're always looking at... Um, widely deployed and important technology and trying to understand like what are the problems with it and how can we help make it better which is that's the whole ethos of ethical hacking and i recently published a book called hackable how to do application security right and that book i was fortunate to see it hit number one bestseller on amazon and that book basically breaks down all of the misconceptions that people have about securing software and i'm, I'm sure we'll talk about some of them today but that's, I think, is one of the biggest challenges in security, and uh, hopefully we can dig into that here today. But so that's me. I, I'm bringing perspectives from the front lines of ethical hacking. Awesome. And that sounds like exactly the perspective that we need for answering this question. I think it's a particularly interesting question because the word hacker is one that's undergone a really big change in meaning as it's become more mainstream because people in the tech world used to use the word hacker to mean someone who kind of enjoys looking at and understanding things that they own, maybe like breaking apart that, like you say, taking your iPhone apart just because you're curious about how it works. And now I think the word hacker is understood to mean something really different. And you talked about the idea of an ethical hacker. And so maybe you could give us a rundown of those terms and how you see them as being different. So the definition that you just introduced of the way people used to think of what a hacker is, is in fact the correct definition of hacker. And the way that I define a hacker is, I, I love the way you said it, actually. I don't, I don't know if I can add too much to it, but the way that I always describe it is a hacker is a creative problem solver. They want to understand how things work. And they, in the context of security, they want to understand how things work so that they can understand how those things get broken. So universally, that's what hackers are. But the one of the big problems today is that the media has really abuse that term and pretty much any headline you read is going to say something like you know hackers steal hackers broke into and mm. it, it's always associating this idea of hacker with evil doing as a bad person and that's really only partly true because as i just mentioned the definition of a hacker is neither good nor bad it's a it's a creative problem solver and 
the distinction, the fork in the road comes with motivation. And those who seek to harm things, those are attackers. And those who seek to improve things, those are the ethical hackers. And yeah, you know, we've <laughs> my business partner, he he made this joke one time. I was like, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that a lot now. About how like why do we have to put the word ethical in front of it? Right? You know, it's it's like a, a hacker is a hacker, just like a a plumber is a plumber, right? You're not saying ethical plumber. Mm. <laughs> but in the modern context, it helps helps you understand like, okay, we're talking about a good type here, right? So that's sort of the big, big challenge is that people are really taking the term to mean something, mean only one of the definitions that's really not the whole thing. Yeah, and I don't know if this is related, but what I found is that every every plumber I've had thinks that the last plumber who came and looked at my pipes was deeply unethical and, and has taken every shortcut <laughs> in the book. Maybe. But I suspect maybe you don't get that same problem with hackers. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The ethics are, uh, I get asked a lot about the ethics. Um, you know, people mm. are like, well, how, how would someone who's, you know, hiring you? I mean, that's like, that's what our business is, right? People pay us to hack their stuff, to find the flaws in it. And the first time that people hear that concept, they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> how does someone know that you're a good guy? And, you know, that's, that is a really interesting and good question. And there, there are certainly people who are not good. There's tons of them. I mean, that's the fact that the bad people exist are the reason that a profession like mine exists. Mm. And so are those terms the same as white hat and black hat? So when you talk about an ethical hacker as the good guy, is that the same as a, a white hat hacker? And is, a, is the bad guy a black hat hacker? Or is that a kind of slightly different terminology? Yeah, those are synonymous. And this, uh, th this terminology, white hat, black hat, actually comes from the, the old Western films that probably none of us mm. actually watch, but like maybe our parents did, where literally the good guy in the movie wears a white hat and the bad guy in the movie uh -huh. always wears a black hat. And so that's where the terminology essentially comes from. And now there's like all these different gradations and there's a lot of people out there trying to advocate for this idea of a gray hat. Like, oh, a little bit good, a little bit bad. And I'm like, no, no, you are either good or you are bad. You're, you're not like a little bit of a criminal. Like there, there's, there's just not a gray area there. And, and while I definitely think that almost all parts of life are on a spectrum and there is gray in the middle, when it comes to ethics, there's no gray area. You're either doing something to harm or you're doing something to help. And there's just not a, a middle ground in there. No matter how many times I argue this point, especially to the trolls, you know, who comments on social media, it's like, there's just, there's just no winning, but there is no gray hat, even though people will say it all day long. Mm. I think that's super interesting. And I suspect you probably have an ethical code you can point us to. And I think that's particularly useful because when we started talking about this topic, um, one of the news stories that was in my mind was that group at the University of Minnesota who submitted some patches to the Linux kernel development team that had known bugs in them. And they were doing this um, essentially to sort of test the process and see how robust the, the Linux kernel development process was to people introducing flaws. I think security flaws potentially, but certainly flaws. Um, and, you know, that it was spotted. Their intention was to do good, they, they say, and they certainly have stated that had it got any closer to 
the the sort of mainline release process, they would have flagged the patches they submitted and said, actually, there, there was a test that you failed <laughs> and, you, mm-hmm. and these got through your process. So that seems like a situation where they probably thought they were doing a good thing. The kernel development team thought pretty much the exact opposite and I think have reverted most patches from a University of Minnesota email address from the kernel and sort of rejected the apology that they made after the fact. I wonder how how do you see that? Where is there a kind of code of ethics that you can point to where they crossed a line? Or do you feel like the Linux kernel team are maybe overreacting here? Well, I don't know all of the details of that story, so it's possible that there's elements of this that I don't know. But based just on the information that you just provided, uh, I would err on the side of the researchers who are submitting that information. I think that the way they did that is, I, I feels a little questionable, the, the process, but if their intent was to test the process and try to improve the process and they didn't harm and they weren't intending to harm, then, okay, I think there's probably a better way they could have done what they're doing. Like maybe if they had um, had maybe a real-time documentation of the process they're doing, like, okay, it, you know, 459 today, we submitted this thing. Here's what we're submitting. Here's why we're trying to submit it in this way and had that sort of running contemporary uh, timeline so that then when it does get, because the point was to get it get caught, right? They wanted it to get mm. caught. So they needed to have some sort of, de- they would have needed to have some documentation to say, and here's the whole point of the research. Here's everything. But the thing that actually jumps out to me about that story, which I, I answer your question a little hesitatingly, it depends because I don't necessarily you know, have all the context. But the, here's the thing that does jump out to me is that that relationship, that dynamic is actually pretty common where it's very contentious between mm. the organization being researched and the organization doing the research. And we come across this all the time, right? Where we'll do research, we'll submit it, and it's it's at best met with indifference and at times met with hostility. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, back in the day, like when, when our company first started doing research, the way that most companies dealt with researchers at that time, with security researchers in particular, was to sue them. <laughs> it was like mm. you, you submit this vulnerability and the company's like cool here's our lawyer and it's like wait uh, hold on <laughs> let me try to help you um and that's evolved a little bit it's not it's not quite as bad now as long as people follow there there is a code of that ethics as you mentioned there's a process called responsible disclosure etc um as long as people are following the proper process then like it's all good but there's still this i mean i had this hilarious story i wrote about this in my book Wait, did this make it? I can't remember. This, this might have not made it into the book. I can't remember if this specific story did. Uh, amazing. Exclusive material for the podcast. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> this might be an exclusive you guys are getting. So uh, we, we did all this research on, um, on routers. And we went through this process that I alluded to before called responsible disclosure. And responsible disclosure, in summary, basically means uh, submit the issue to the afflicted manufacturer with a timeline to say like, hey, you know, fix it, and we'll help you fix it if you want. Uh, but then by this date, we're going to go and we're going to we're going to publish the research and talk about it. And the point, because the point is to help and make things better. You don't want to just like give the attack blueprint to the bad guy. Yeah. So we go through responsible disclosure. There were I don't remember exactly how many, maybe like ten companies that were afflicted 
so we submitted all this information about all the um, different issues to all the different companies. And one company in particular never responded. And we followed up and followed up and followed up. And they just never replied to us. And we're like, all right, well, responsible disclosure has concluded. So when we went to go publish it, we, of course, redacted any of the information that would have made it so that someone could replicate the issue. But we went to press. Well, who calls us that very same day? The company that had been ignoring us for like literally months. I mean, I think it was probably five or six months at this point. They had not replied to anything. And they call mm -hmm. us up the day their company name is in the headline. And they said, we want to change things. So we're psyched. We're like, this is great. That's the point of security research is to, you know, when you find the issues, drive change. You want to make things better. That's the whole point of security. Make things better. Yeah. And so we're psyched about this. So we're like, great. And they said, we'll have someone come to your office tomorrow. We're like, wow, tomorrow someone's going to come. We're talking about changes. Awesome. Here's the address. Next day, they send this VP. They send like a pretty high up executive, flies down from the Bay Area to our, uh, our San Diego office. And within about, I'm going to guess it was like seven and a half minutes, it becomes clear <laughs> what this person is actually there trying to do. They're not there to try to change their product. They're there to try to change the narrative. They literally wanted us to just change the report. And we're like, we're happy to issue an addendum or an update once you, you know, fix it. We're mm. happy to do that. And then, in fact, that will make you guys look really good because you reacted to security research. But they, they didn't. They tried more of these sort of like these tactics. And the best part, though, the highlight, and this, is, this needs to be in a frame on the wall of my office. They sent us a memo. And it literally had, remember, you know, like a rubber stamp? Like you, you mm. take a stamp, you put it in ink, and you stamp it on a piece of paper. It literally had that rubber stamp. Wow. And it just said, and the stamp just said certified. <laughs> and the memo said, <laughs> We self-certify there to be no vulnerabilities in this product. And I had the rubber stamp. And we're like, but you didn't change it. Like, you, you literally just tried to tell us. It's like, what are you talking about? And so that story, I mean, my profession is to expect the unexpected. Even at that, I was like, this is, this is a special level of, like, ridiculous. Um, but that kind of stuff is, is really common. And that wasn't very hostile or there wasn't a lot of animosity in that exchange like there was in the University of Minnesota story you were telling. But mm. nevertheless, there was like, hey, we are not aligned on the goal here. And that is, unfortunately, that still persists pretty commonly across security research. Mm. There is so much about that, that action that feels completely alien to me. That, I mean, even just the idea of printing something out saying, we're sure we're secure. Hang on, this isn't enough. We get yeah. the rubber stamp. It's just <laughs> like, where'd you incredible. get a rubber stamp that said certified? Like you had to go to Amazon to buy it probably. Right. And then, yeah. and then someone's job was to print the thing and then someone had to stamp it and then someone scanned it and then emailed it. And we're like, just put that effort into fixing the thing. Like that's a lot of yeah. time you guys just put into this. Yeah. Oh, it makes me want to buy a rubber stamp off Amazon. I, <laughs> one thing that might surprise people about the responsible disclosure process is that even if things aren't, fixed or even acknowledged potentially you might still make something public at the end of a certain window of time can you talk about that and how because that might come across as meaning that someone has become that a hacker is acting in a bad way that you know you've given me three months to fix that fix this but really i needed five so 
when companies participate in the responsible disclosure process, researchers are very accommodating. So for let's just say that exact scenario happened. We said, here's the thing, we're gonna, you know, most responsible disclosure is actually like 30 days, some are 60. We usually mm. follow more like 75 or sometimes even 90 days. Um, but let's say we submitted it, we said 90 days, and they're like, no, we need 180. We'd say, absolutely, like totally. The whole point is to, you know, collaborate to make things better. Um, there is a time at which point we we would no longer tolerate if we feel like it's just a bunch of delay tactics. Mm-hmm. But when someone just ignores it, well, what are we going to do then? You know, and so the there is this inherent friction between a researcher and a company who's being researched because the company being researched in many cases they they don't really want to admit that they made a mistake they don't realize Mm. though that it's okay to make mistakes and in fact i mean think about any any aspect of your life and like we're gonna sit on my therapist's couch right now like okay so i'm the therapist we're all we're all having a therapy session think about any time that you made a mistake and you acknowledge the mistake and you worked on it and now you're better because you understood the issue it's the same idea, right? Like the same way we work on ourselves as humans is the same way we work on our systems. And if we ignore the mistakes and we try to bury them or swallow them or you know do nothing to improve on them, we're never going to get any better. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of companies, they worry that like, oh, someone's going to judge me or not do business with me because I made a mistake. It's like, no, once you, once you acknowledge you made a mistake and then show how you fixed it, companies are going to more want to work with you because they mm. th- that reflects really positively on you. Yeah, I think there's a really important, for some companies, there's probably an attitude shift that needs to happen there. Um, I wonder, so I wonder about companies that publicize their bug bounty programs or use uh, sites like HackerOne, where you can essentially publish the fact that you do run a bug bounty program, you encourage responsible hackers to come and try, try to break things and tell you when they do. I wonder if some companies see that as essentially advertising that they do have flaws and that the idea that if they put themselves in a bug, bug bounty program, they're essentially essentially advertising that there might be security holes that someone could use to profit from illicitly rather than responsibly disclosing and getting getting rewarded for that. Um, I'm not entirely sh- sure if that's correct. Uh, so... Let's talk about bug bounty programs because there's yeah. this is definitely a it depends uh, topic. Mm. <laughs> so, um, okay, so companies who will impl- hire and implement a bug bounty program, I genuinely believe that those companies doing that are doing it for the right reasons. They are trying to they they are genuinely trying to find their issues. They are trying to. Uh, obtain a marketing benefit that says like, hey, look, not only not, we take security seriously as evidenced by we do this program and we encourage people to come look at us and we, um, you know, we pay them for helping us. Mm-hmm. And so I think the the spirit of why companies typically will engage a bug bounty uh, program are all definitely coming from a good place. They want to get better. They want to be able to advertise it. They want to demonstrate that like, hey, this is something that matters to them. So And that's awesome. So the spirit of mm-hmm. bug bounty programs I love it. I'm definitely in support of the implementation of bug bounty programs often leaves a lot to be desired because what winds up happening many times is that, uh, the bug bounty programs, they have to define a scope. So it's like, well, you can only look at this certain type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and any issues found outside of that thing, 
uh, well, thanks for telling us, but you're not going to get paid and we're not going to, we, we might or might not do anything about it. Um, then things that are within the scope, it's like, oh, well, someone else might have already found that. And so we're not going to pay you, which I get that actually is totally fine. Like, why should they pay for the same issue found multiple times? But that nuance is, uh, I would even go so far as to say is often abused where you know we as security researchers we don't really care about participating in bug bounty programs like we don't care to go make you know 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or even like five thousand dollars on a bounty mm -hmm. we want to help the company get better and either have them hire us to perform security assessments or publish research we don't like these little these small dollar things don't doesn't move the needle for us but nevertheless when companies have them we have to participate so we're like all right well this is the only way i can get the information to you like if your responsible disclosure process requires going through this sure we'll go through it mm. and what winds up happening this ha this has happened to us more times than i can count where we'll submit it and then we'll be told um well someone already submitted this issue so not only um are we not going to necessarily make any change the issue still exists because we just found it but We've, we're discovering that um, you now, as a researcher, are not allowed to talk about it. And I don't, I don't actually think this is what bug bounty programs intend to do. I do not think their purpose is to muzzle security researchers or to disadvantage security researchers, but it's what actually happens. Because think about what it means from a security researcher standpoint. You are investing your own time, effort, money, resources, energy into finding issues, then you submit them completely at risk. And if the recipient of that information says you get neither compensation nor the right to go talk about it at a security conference, that's really unfair. That's, that's like bordering on un unethical. And, uh, and so those are some of the issues where I think people might not realize that the implementation of how these programs work really matters. Like it needs to be in collaboration with the security research community, not taking advantage of the security research community. Mm, yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And it, there's nothing stopping you though, is there having both the bug bounty program and engaging, like reaching out to pen testers say, and asking them to, paying them for an engagement to look at your systems and to, to kind of dive into them. Not only is there nothing preventing you, you must do both. So here's the way to think about it. You can do just a security testing program on its own, like what people might call penetration testing, vulnerability assessments. That's a whole other conversation we can have about how those terms are all messed up, but you can do that alone. You can do that and add a bug bounty program, but you should not do only a bug bounty program. And, and here's the metaphor to explain why that is the case. Let's say something ails you, right? You got a stomach ache or whatever, it's not going away. And so you want to diagnose your problem so you can start feeling better. So what do you do, right? You go to your doctor and you explain your symptoms and your doctor helps you, you know, diagnose the issue, gives you a treatment plan. You have the full attention of your doctor and her, you know, full staff of resources and, you know, personnel and everything gives you a treatment plan. You go home and uh, hopefully you get better. So you could do, you could just go see your doctor. You could go see your doctor and you could also post online somewhere and be like, Hey, I got this stomach ache. I have these symptoms, whatever. Anyone have any ideas? Who knows what you're going to get back when you do that? You would definitely never 
only post your symptoms to the internet. <laughs> and that's kind of, so the posting to the internet, that's kind of the bug bounty, right? Which is saying like, hey, here's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Anybody who can come help me, please come help me. Whereas the doctor is more of that, you're engaging directly with an expert who's helping directly help you solve your problems. And, um, and has, of course, you know, you can verify their credentials and, and all that kind of stuff. So you can do just a testing program. You can do a testing program plus bug bounties, but you shouldn't do only a bug bounty. Mm. I have to say my own experience has, has, has mirrored that. I found that for me, the main value of the bug bounty program has been if someone does discover a flaw, then they are incentivized to report it legally and get rewarded for that rather than share it with people who might use it for bad purposes. But most of the things that I've been sent by bug bounty programs, at least in my experience, have been essentially the outcome, the output from someone running Burp Suite across the site. And it right. just gets dropped in an email. And then it's on me to like go through all of this very, very generic stuff and actually see if any of it is a security flaw, if any of it is a kind of false positive where the kind of dedicated pen testers, for want of a, a better term, are the people who are kind of being a bit more crafty and specific in what they're looking for. Um, and therefore, it's been a much more valuable exercise. So I, I wonder if the, the point of a bug bounty program is really to convert people who might be on the fence about what they find into being the kind of good on my side hacker and giving them an incentive to do that rather than letting them potentially be um, persuaded to be the kind of bad working against the company hacker. Yeah, I have zero data to support the theory I'll present <laughs> okay. right now. Uh, the best kind of theories are the ones that's like, here's an opinion. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know whether or not that's necessarily true. But I, one of the, you know, I just, of course, went on a rant against the poor implementation practices sometimes that happen with bug bounty programs. But one thing that is really great about bug bounty programs is it enables people who live in, especially in countries where uh, there's going to be all kinds of visa or, or other travel constraints to get to America and, you know, be able to work for a big tech company or whatever. Um, those kinds of people and, who have those travel constraints and also live in a place where cost of living is very, 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 very low. Like imagine someone mm -hmm. who lives like in India. Um, I was just like, oh, I'm not that excited about, you know, a $2,000 or $5,000 bug bounty program, bug uh, bounty. I would rather like do a proper engagement with a client or, or not get paid at all and publish the research. Well, mm -hmm. someone in a low cost of living country, they might be able to be like, Hey, a five, you know, a few $500 bounties a month. Like I'm paying for my entire family. And I think that's a, actually a really beautiful thing that what a bug bounty program does is it opens up. Uh, income opportunities and really career opportunities for people all over the world in the pursuit of doing something good, which is helping mm. companies like from an idealistic standpoint, that's a beautiful thing. And so even though I think I have, I have a lot of issues with the uh, implementation at, at points, conceptually, I'm, I'm a big proponent of something like that. Mm. I guess um, stepping back and thinking about different companies and the kinds of problems they face, do you think do you think there are there are classes of company that maybe should avoid bug bounty programs? So I'm thinking of things like banks, where any they might decide to take a posture where anyone who's even trying to attack their systems needs to be treated um, with hostility. For example, like do, do you do you see? 
either sectors or industries where you think they need to take a really different attitude? Uh, against bug bounty programs, not really, because I mean, really, I think part of what your question is, is, is there an industry that maybe should think differently about security testing period? And, mm. uh, I think that any, any company that has, and I'm saying company, but I'm not limiting this advice to just commercial businesses. I'm also talking about nonprofits, government entities, et cetera. But any organization that has something worth protecting, then it's worth investing in security. And not everyone has something worth protecting, right? Like you might have your blog on WordPress and it's just like, you know, your crappy homemade recipes or whatever. Like, are you going to go spend a hundred grand to protect? Like, no, you're like, just, it's fine. Just someone, someone gets and steals your recipes. Like you'll, you'll be fine. Um, But if you're a bank, you probably want as much security help as you can get. Uh, so no, I wouldn't say there's necessarily a scenario where it's a bad application for um, bug bounty program, but there is a detail of uh, observation that you made a moment ago around the output that you got. And so this is now, this is a, a not a comment about bug bounty programs, but a, a comment more about what testing even is. And mm. what you just described, this idea of someone ran a tool and then put the results in some sort of format and was like, here's the results, you know, go have fun, figure it out yourself. Surprisingly, that's actually what most security testing today looks like. Mm. It's everyone's trying to automate everything. And, um, people are, uh, people are trying to reduce their spending. And so those approaches, they're very inexpensive. I mean, you know, like someone can charge like five grand, you know, 5,000 us dollars or something to, uh, to do something like that, maybe even less. And so the buyer of that is like, well, how's that different from this thing over here? That's like $50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars or 150,000. And the difference is that someone runs a tool. It, you know, it's full of false positives, isn't catered to your specific, uh, you know, threat model. And it doesn't really tell you how to fix it. And Mm. when people consume that information, they don't realize that difference until they get a proper security assessment. They're like, Oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. I have the advice. It's catered to my threat model. The severity ratings are, uh, are customized. And, uh, and that's one of the, there's a, of the many drums that I'm banging in when I wrote my book and, you know, appearing on podcasts and stuff, that's one of them. Like, Hey, it's not got to understand there's a difference between these approaches because the outcome is really different. Mm. I feel like what you're saying is that kind of security research has to be context-based. Primarily contextual. Yes. Ted, you're talking my language. This is amazing. I hope, I hope we've given all of our listeners a really, uh, some really good ideas to, of how they should think about security and particularly how they should think about the people outside the building who can either help them investigate that or who can be actively working against them. Ted, this has been super, super helpful. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, if anything that we talked about today either triggers additional questions that you might want to ask or you want to learn more about my book or you want help with security testing yourself, uh, just go to tedharrington.com and all that information is there. There's all kinds of resources you can download. You can find where to follow me on social media, how to email me. Uh, Super easy, just tedharrington.com. And your podcast. There's information on my podcast there too, Tech Done Different. We're, uh, we're always interviewing tech leaders and talking about how can we do things differently? How do we go against conventional wisdom? Amazing. 
Well, that's all we've got time for today. Join us in our next episode when we'll be talking about another question that is primarily context-based. <laughs>